The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, reading to chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the, uh, sorry, for the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right." Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Everyone who claims to be a Christian is to be different. We are to think differently. We're to behave differently. We are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel because... We are new creatures in Christ. Now I want you to notice something here. There is a very long extended logic chain that Paul works through chapter 5 and verse 1 all the way down to 6 and verse 9. And the way it works is this. And I want you to just look down at your Bible. We're going to track through and I'll show you how his logic structures its way through. Because it drives everything he's commanding the, the husbands and wives and children and so on. 
Paul tells us, he gives us one main command, or the first main command in 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he tells us how we are to imitate God as beloved children. We're to imitate him by living in love as Christ loved. We're to imitate God as beloved children by living as children of light in verse number 7. And we're to live as beloved children, living as wise in verse number 15. And then what Paul does, he tells us how we are to walk and live as wise people. We're to live as wise, not fools, by, verse 16, making the most of our time. Secondly, in verse 17, we're to live as wise by understanding the will of the Lord. And thirdly, by being filled with the Spirit in verses 17 and 18. And then what Paul does is he tells us what it looks like for a Christian to be filled with the Spirit. He is one who is speaking and singing and giving thanks in his heart to God. And he is one who is being subject to one another. And then what he does in verse 22 is he gives an example, exemplifying it in wives being subject to husbands. And by implication, husbands are submitting to Christ as they love their wives. There is, as we said a few weeks ago, both equality and order within the marriage relationship. The third example is given in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6 by children obeying their parents And then in verses 5 to 8, by slaves obeying masters. The point I'm trying to make is this. The logic command, the logic chain from 5 and verse 1 all the way down to 6 and verse 9 drives his commands in verses 5, verse 22, all the way down to 6 and verse 9. That's the logic behind all those specific commands. The root, if you like, of the logic... The root of the command, sorry, to wives and to husbands, to children and to fathers, to slaves and to masters, is all found right back in verse 1 of chapter 5. Imitate God as beloved children. In fact, what you could do is you could take each of those commands and you could plug them back into the logic and you'll see what I mean. So we'll take husbands, we'll use the men as an example. Husbands. When we love our wives as Christ loved the church, we are carrying out each of these other commands. So when we love our wives, we're imitating God as beloved children. When we love our wives as Christ loved the church, we're living in love as Christ loved the church. It's exactly what he says in verse 23. When we love our wives, we are refusing to allow ungodliness into our marriage in verses 3 through 5. When we love our wives as Christ loved the church, from verse 8, we're living as children of light. In verse 10, when we love our wives, we're learning what is pleasing to the Lord. What more, what better could we do as husbands to please the Lord than to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church? Amen? That's the perfect way we can please the Lord. One of many ways, but it's a good way. Verse 15, we're being careful how we live when we love our wives as Christ loved the church. In verse 15, we're living as wise men when we love our wives as Christ loved the church. What greater wisdom can we show in our marriage and our family when we love our wives the way that Christ loved us? We're making the most of our time, verse 16. In verse 17, we're understanding what the will of of God is when we love our wives the way Christ loved the church. You see what I'm saying? You can take those specific commands, wives be subject to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, and you can plug them back into all those previous commands that Paul gave us, and it all makes sense. So when we love our wives... We're imitating God as beloved children and all the way through that logic chain. It's the same thing with wives. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, you are imitating God as beloved children. You're imitating Christ who submitted to his father. You're living as wise women, not foolish. You're displaying, verse 18, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. And then we hit our passage for today. When we got here, uh, someone said to me, 
why there's nobody here yet and it's like 10 o'clock and I said that's okay we're running on Baptist standard time it's five minutes behind their regular time and they'll, they'll come and I said you know I thought the mom and dads would be all here and they'd have their children in their hands and they'd be trucking down the front and making their kids all sit in the front row because we're going to talk about children obeying your parents and I was praying we were all praying back there that God would send lots of kids here and I was thrilled to see a family of five walk in five kids like yes Lord answers prayer so here we are, children or youths and teens, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And young people, I want you to hang on this, okay? There's only a few of you here. I'll try not to look at you too often, but here you go. Children, youth, young people, when you obey your parents in the Lord, you are imitating God as his beloved children. Hang on to that. You're imitating Christ who obeyed his father even to death on a cross. You're living as wise youths, not foolish youths. If you want some unpacking of that, go back to the book of Proverbs. You know what it says all the way, Proverbs? This is a father speaking to his sons and his children about how to be wise men and women of God. You're living as wise if you obey your parents. You're displaying Christian young people. Listen. When you obey your parents, you are displaying that you're filled with the Holy Spirit as believers and followers of Christ. Obedience to our parents is not a drag, it's not a chore. It's a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way to live. Obeying your parents, listen, is doing what the coolest son, if I can use that term, who ever lived, did. He obeyed his father even to the point of death on a cross. Obeying your parents, young people, is not to step down. It's to step up and stand alongside of Christ who obeyed his Father to the full. I want to give you the message in a nutshell. If you like in your uh, bulletins there, there is a note sheet. You can pull it out and follow along. It's a green one this time, I believe. Looks like that. You can pull it out and follow along. The message in a nutshell is this. Children, youths, young people, obey your parents in the Lord because obedience to parents displays that you're truly following Jesus Christ. So notice the text. Very simple. Children, obey your parents. Notice that Paul is directly addressing the children and the young people in the church. So when the messenger came with this original letter written to Ephesus on a scroll, he would have come into the church building. They would have gathered the whole church together, wives, husbands, children, young people, old people, and they would have read that letter out in its full. Like we did way back when we first started Ephesians, we read the whole letter through in one go. And all the children would have been there. And as the messenger would have read that letter, he would have looked down at those young people and he would have addressed them directly. From the perspective of Scripture, children and young people are to be sitting under both the preaching and the teaching of the Bible in Sunday school and if when it happens in church with their parents. It's a great thing for families to do is to sit together under the sound of the Word of God. Paul's letter from Paul addressed a very relevant problem in their culture and society and in ours today as well. And the problem is that of disobedience. So that is the first point there, the problem of disobedience. It's the sin of disobedience. You take the whole Bible story, what it is, is fundamentally the story of man's disobedience to God and God's work through Christ to redeem and rescue man back to himself. We could define disobedience like this. It's a stubborn refusal to submit to the rules and laws and commands of those who are in authority over us. It's insubordination, it's waywardness, it's bad behavior, it's delinquency, they call it. It's mischievousness, or as my mom would say, it's being a naughty boy. And she said that a lot to me. You're a naughty boy. I can still remember I was a little kid getting said that, uh, being told that by my mom. But where does disobedience come from? Why is it that you don't have to teach a child to disobey? We never have to teach our kids to lie or steal. And you can always tell when they've done it, right? They come up and you see them and they're caught. And what's the first thing they do? The hand goes behind the back, right? And then they look down and they won't look at you. You never have to teach a kid and say, okay, now, listen, son, when you steal something, this is how you do it. They've all learned. It's all ingrained in them. They do it coming out of the womb. They come out as sinners. So where does disobedience come from? 
It was caused by the fall of man into sin. The Bible says in Genesis 2.17 that God commanded the man, gave him a law, one single rule, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Man lived in the garden in a covenant relationship with God. His obedience to that single, simple covenant command guaranteed his place in a wonderful garden environment with God and with his wife Eve. In Genesis 3, 1-7, we read a few weeks ago, you know the story well. There is a fall. And fundamentally what they did was they disobeyed God's command. The Bible says their eyes are opened. By the way, uh, my boys and I and Heather have been around the table reading through Genesis and just trying to unpack some of the theology in Genesis. If you want to understand the Bible, you want to understand the gospel, don't start in Matthew, start in Genesis. Genesis 1 through 3, if you get what's happening there, everything else from there on will make sense. It's a beautiful way to understand. It's a great way to introduce the gospel into your life. So there's a fall there. Their eyes are opened. They now know experientially what it was to disobey. In Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. What are you saying there? He's not so much a problem that he listened to Eve. The problem was that he listened to Eve rather than listening to and remembering what God had said. He gave heed and he listened and he responded and he followed her example. Disobedience is a refusal to listen, to heed, to conform to the laws and the rules and the commands of God, of those in authority over us. So Adam disobeyed the Lord's command. And that had consequences. And those consequences weren't just for Adam. He didn't just have his eyes open to see that he was naked and he was ashamed and so he hid. The consequence didn't end there. The consequence is that sin got passed on to all of mankind. The Bible says in Romans 5 verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we have these verses, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam's sin of disobedience, it had consequences to all. Man has inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. Okay, the Bible says in Psalm 51, this is David's great penitential psalm. He's come before God. He's been exposed in his sin. And he cries out to God and he writes this psalm of repentance and confession before God. And this is what he says. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming the sin on his mother. He's saying that I from the womb was a sinful person. Psalm 58 and verse 3. Listen to what it says. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Like I said before, little, little, tiny kids can't even talk, some of them. And they already know how to steal and how to lie and how to sin against God. It's an inherent nature in them. Adam's disobedience meant that we are all sinners before God. Man sins, listen, because he is a sinner. Man doesn't, man's not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. It's inherent nature in us. We were born in sin. We sin because we want to, and we sin because we like it. And fundamentally, the issue is that disobedience is sin against God. And disobedience continued through Bible history. All through the history of the Bible, you can see it. We saw Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they lost that holy state and the garden place where they dwell with God. Cain disobeyed God and was driven away from God's presence. Moses, man, if there was ever a guy who deserved a medal for endurance and bravery and long suffering, it was Moses. 
He led the people of Israel, although they bucked and fought against him repeatedly all the way through those years. But you know what? One single act of disobedience and he was refused entry into the land of Canaan. His disobedience, his sin had consequences. Eli the priest, he disobeyed God. He refused to restrain his sons and stop them from committing ongoing sin. And as a result, he lost the priesthood from his family. King Saul... We often look at King Saul as an example of disobedience. He disobeyed God and he lost the kingdom. No longer would there be a dynasty named after him. It ended with him. It started with him and it ended with him. David. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. And yet when he disobeyed, everything up to that point when he had that affair with Bathsheba and he committed murder and adultery and all the rest of it, Everything was going so well in David's life. And if you read the story before and the story after, you see a rise and you see a decline, a fall. And David's radically changed. Yes, God has grace. And yes, God forgives him. But that disobedience marks him for the rest of his life. And the problem back in our text that Paul is addressing is disobedience. The very fact that he commands obedience to parents identifies that. The problem was in Ephesus and in our culture today. Disobedience is driven by our inherited sin nature. We inherited from Adam and Eve by their disobedience. And listen, disobedience is a sin. It is not cute. It is not something to laugh over. I see on the, all the time you walk through the shopping centers, you see kid, moms with little kids and the kids disobeying and they just think it's funny. It's tragic. It's not funny. In fact, God takes it very, very seriously. So listen, I'm going to dread a bit of a heavy here. Young people, when you disobey your parents, it is a sin against God. Refusal to obey mom and dad is a sin against God and against them. Refusing to obey their rules is sin. A defiant, rebellious heart is sin against God. And God does not take it lightly. God's law in the Old Testament allowed for parents... I could not imagine this, but listen. He allowed for parents to bring a disobedient son out to the elders of the city, and the children could be stoned to death for their continual, steadfast refusal to obey. God dealt with disobedience very seriously. God said to King Saul, when, when King Saul was confronted about his disobedience, he said, disobedience is a sin of witchcraft, insubordination, a refusal to be subordinate to God is as idolatry. And disobedience is a rejection of God's rightful rule over us. That's heavy words. God's words to King Saul should make us stop and pause and wonder. Wow. God takes it that seriously. Is that the end of the story? Well, of course we know it's not, isn't it? The problem is disobedience. The problem is, is sin in our lives. But Christ's obedience is, of course, a solution to the problem. Remember those verses we read earlier, Romans 5, 18 and 19? Listen again. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said like this, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For listen, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The problem is disobedience. The problem plunged the whole world into slavery to sin. But praise God. Glory be to the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Jesus came and in his perfect obedience, he broke the power of sin and death. By Christ's obedience, we can be freed from slavery to disobedience. You say, how perfect, just how perfect was Christ's obedience? Listen to what the Bible says. In Isaiah 40 and verse 7, the Bible says that Christ delighted to do the will of God. 
In John 4 and verse 44, Jesus Himself said that His Father's will was as food to Him. That means that was His sustaining substance. His obeying God was just as necessary and vital to Him as the very food that He ate to sustain His body. In Matthew 26, 39, we looked at it last week. He was obedient to his Father's will over and above his own will. Listen to his words and you get the idea, the flavor of just how obedient Christ was. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Even though it meant he was going to go to a cross because of that. In Isaiah 50 and verse 5, Christ was obedient to the point of giving his back to the scourgers and his face to those who pulled out his beard. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, Christ learned or experienced obedience by the things he suffered during his torture and later in the cross in his death. In Philippians 2, verse 8, Christ obeyed to the point of death on the cross. And when he said on the cross, it is finished, what did he mean? He mean every single thing that you have given me to do, I have obeyed it all to the absolute full. I've obeyed your will perfectly. And listen, here's the beautiful part of the story. Because he obeyed his father perfectly, Hebrews 5 and verse 9 says this, Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Adam disobeyed God and we're all plunged into sin. But Christ obeyed God perfectly and is able to save us all if we respond to the message of the gospel. And that's the king's point. That's the key point. Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience. Our sin is placed on Him. His righteousness, His perfect obedience becomes ours. So what is the message of the gospel? Well, if you take your sheet and flip it over on the back side there, I've put it in bullet point form. What is the simple message of the gospel? And it's this. God is holy and righteous and good. Absolutely good. God designed us and created us to experience unhindered joy and delight by glorifying Him through obedience to His words. But sadly, we have all, every single one of us, from Adam down to us, have disobeyed God. And God has justly condemned us to eternal death because we have disobeyed Him, His word, and His law. But that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. That's where the gospel is such great news. It's not a terribly hard, heavy thing. It is because of the bad news. But the good news is so much greater because of the bad news. Christ has come. He is truly God and truly man. He is the only unique Son of God, perfect and sinless and spotless. Christ has taken our sin on Himself. He suffered and He died on a cross to absorb God's wrath against you and against me. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And that resurrection declared with a great shout that He is the Son of God. Death has no hold over Him. And Jesus calls us to turn away from sin. He calls us to trust Him absolutely and fully. Trust Him to keep His promises. He calls us to follow Him in obedience. I was chatting with someone this week. We were talking about the gospel, and I said, you know what? Somehow we've managed to strip the gospel down a little bit. The gospel is not just believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. The gospel is repent of sin. It's believe in Jesus Christ. Trust God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And it's also to follow Him. The gospel call is a call to step in behind Christ and walk and live as He lived. Which is how we're going to get to our, back to our passage in a minute. Everyone who comes to Christ in faith and obedience, he will not turn away. Everyone who comes seeking Christ with all their heart, he promises if you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. You'll know what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God. you know what it is to have forgiveness of sin. And so my plea with you is to come to Christ. Come and know what eternal life is truly all about. If you want some help with that, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'll talk to Wes or Poovin or Con or one other guy. Talk to some Christian friend you have who can explain it better to you. It's what we're here for, to help you find faith and find eternal life in Christ. But 
Meanwhile, back in our text of Ephesians 6, he says, Obey your parents as beloved children of God. He is addressing, addressing, sorry, he's addressing Christian youths and teens and young people and children in the church. Christian ones. That's the sense of obey your parents in the Lord. That's kind of what it means. So the sense is that Christian teens are to obey their parents. Now, does that mean that if you're not a Christian, you don't have to obey your parents? No, not at all. It's not what it means even for a little moment. What it means is the expectation on child... I'll try it again. In children, teens, and youths who have come to faith in Christ is higher. Unbelieving children will constantly wrestle with obedience because of the power of sin in their lives. They'll wrestle with disobedience to their parents all through those days. But listen, believing youths are expected by God to be willing and eager to obey. You say, that's a pretty big heavy to place on a Christian young person. But listen, that's the whole point of what he's been saying in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. He's told us in Ephesians 1 through 3 how it is we've been made new creatures in Christ. But having been made new creatures in Christ, there is now an expected change in the way in which we live. The lives of disciples of Christ, those who are adopted children of God, are to be different. Remarkably different from those around us. We're no longer to live as disobedient children of wrath. We're to live as new creatures in Christ. We're to live as new creatures empowered by the Holy Spirit. So wives, live as new creatures in Christ, submitting to husbands. Husbands, live as new creatures in Christ, sacrificially loving your wives, loving our wives, dying for them, nourishing them and cherishing them. And young people... Live as new creatures in Christ, obeying your parents. You say, it's not so bad for the husbands. They get to love their wives. You're right. It's not so bad. We get to love our wives, and it's not hard to love our wives. Some days. Some days it is. Not because their wives are difficult, but because we have a sin nature in us that fights against that. He said, it's easy for wives. They just get to submit and let their husbands do all the tough stuff. It's easy for them. No, it's not. Because the sin nature in them fights against that. And it's a constant battle, a constant wrestle between the old nature and the new nature. So for kids, you say, well, obey your parents? That's difficult. You don't know my parents. Well, you didn't know mine. They're watching, so I've got to be careful what I say now, right? Listen. The call to obey our parents is not based in our own strength and ability to do it in the natural person. He's calling Christian young people to obey their parents because they are new creatures in Christ. They've been given a new heart. They've been given a new mindset, a new attitude. They're to put off the old person and put on the new person in Christ. They're to put on Christ Jesus. So number one. Obeying your parents is to submit to God's authority. Obedience is recognizing that they are there by God's design. You did not pick your parents. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, and if I hadn't, it wouldn't have been them. But listen, think about it this way. They didn't pick you either, right? They gave birth, and there you were. And unless you're adopted, you didn't pick each other. So who put you together? No, God did. And God, by His sovereign wisdom and His grace, and He knew exactly what you needed, and He knew exactly what they needed to be dealing with as parents, and they put you together. And God gave you into their hands. And obeying your parents is not just submitting to their authority, it is submitting to God's authority over and above. Obedience is recognizing God's authority over you, that he placed you there. Secondly, obeying your parents is practicing righteousness. You take your Bibles and flip back a page, you'll see in 2 and verse 8, he says that we are saved by grace through faith. He also says in 2 and verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. 
All of our salvation, all of the work of God the Holy Spirit in us to make us more like Christ, that's God's master craftsmanship as He is shaping you and working you. And listen, Christian young person, if you're in that home and you're submitting to your parents, He is using your parents and your relationship with Him, with them, to shape you and make you more like Christ. It's a practice of righteousness because, as he says in 6 and verse uh, 1 at the very end, for this is right. What does he mean by that? Just a good thing to do? No, what he means is it's the same word as the root word for righteousness. So young person, children, as you obey your parents in the Lord, you are practicing righteous behavior before God. That is behavior and attitude and speaking that honors and glorifies Him. It's right in God's sight. It's righteousness. He has prepared good works for us to do in verse 10 of chapter 2. This is one of those good works that God's prepared for you to do. You say, why? If you knew my parents, you know that God, you know, is working with some pretty rough material. But you know what? Listen, I'll say this from my own experience. The lessons that you refuse to learn, young people, when you're at home, God will teach you when you leave home. And when I say your parents are gracious and kind and loving and very, very tolerant in comparison to God... Don't misunderstand me. God is obviously more gracious than your parents are. But God will deal with you in ways that can leave scars. And God will bring you through some difficult things to teach you and train you the things that you could have learned in mom and dad's home. Our God is a faithful God. Our God is seeing to it that he raises us through our parents, first of all. When we step out underneath our parents' authority and we refuse to live under their roof and refuse to do as they ask ask us to do and step out on our own, we step out underneath their umbrella of protection, if you like, and we step out. And now there is nothing between us and God, and God deals with us directly, as opposed to before when He dealt through your parents. Yes, of course, God is more gracious than your parents. But God does deal. God, God does deal strongly with us. And I know because I remember walking around Burnaby, which is a place in Vancouver, at 2 o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, all the sin of my life and all the disobedience and all the horrible things I'd done for so many years had come crashing down around my ears. And God was dealing with me. And it hurt. And there are some scars I will never get rid of. But they are scars also of God's grace because God inflicted that pain that He might bring me back to obedience and bring me back to a right way of living before Him. Listen, young people. Obeying your parents is to practice righteousness. Obeying your parents is to submit to God's authority. Obeying your parents glorifies God. It means it make, to glorify means to make their name great. Obedience both submits to parents and honors them. It honors them as we obey and put our will beneath their will and submit to what they would have us to do. Our submission makes their name and their person great in our eyes. Obedience to parents is obedience to God's word. Obedience that is wholehearted is obedience that honors both parents and God as well. It glorifies God by saying that his way is right and our way is best submitted to his way. Lastly, obeying your parents, and this is the best, I say best to last. Young people, listen. Obeying your parents imitates Christ and godly youths all through Scripture. In Genesis 22, Isaac obeyed his father, willing to die on the altar. Think about that story for a second. Isaac's probably 14, 15 years of age. Abraham is 110-ish, 112 maybe, give or take. Who's stronger? Well, my money is on Isaac, perfectly, to be honest with you. And Abraham's, let's go. We're going to go for a walk across the desert for three days. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to offer an offering. And they go all the way across the desert, and they're walking together, and there's the two servants, and there's a donkey, and there's a wood. And Isaac starts to look around him, and he says, Father, behold, the fire and the knife and the wood for the offering, but where's the lamb? 
And I can't imagine what Abraham must have gone through. Those words must have been like a knife thorn through his heart. And he looks back. I can see him sort of looking back at his son over his shoulder as he's leading the way. God himself will provide a lamb. And that was his cry of hope that God would intervene. And he sees a long way off the Mount Moriah. He says to the boy, the servant, stay here. I and the boy will go yonder. We will worship and we will come back. And they go heading across the desert together. They go up the mountainside. And on top of the mountain, they're still looking around. And Isaac can just see him going, what's going on here? Abraham has put the wood on his shoulders. And Abraham builds an altar and takes the wood and arranges it all on the altar. And somehow I'm convinced in that story that we're not told, Abraham communicated to Isaac, you're the lamb. He bound him and he picked him up and put him on top of that wood. And all through that, Isaac is submitting to his father. If he had wrestled and fought back, I'm convinced he could have booked it down that mountain and gotten out of there far faster than Abraham could have caught him. He had to submit. He knew what it was to obey his father. And he submitted to the point where his father takes a knife out of the sheath and lifts it up over his head to plunge it down into Isaac's chest. And of course, God is there and he grabs a hold of Abraham's hand and says, just a minute, look over there. He takes the ram, he offers it in the place of Isaac. Isaac obeyed his father to a depth that none of us have ever been asked for. In Genesis 37, Joseph obeyed his father. His father said, go and check on your brothers. Joseph knew they hated him. And he goes walking across the desert, a couple days journey, and he finally finds his brother. And what do they do? They bind him up, throw him, they tear off his robe, tear it to pieces and throw him in a well and leave him there. And they pull him up and sell him for 30 pieces of silver to some slave traders going by. And off he goes into slavery. Joseph obeyed his father. He knew his brothers didn't like him. They hated him. David obeyed Jesse. Take some cheeses and some breads and go to the army. Go to the battle. See how it fares with your brothers. He obeyed his father. And ultimately, above all this, in Luke chapter 2 and verses 50 and 51, Jesus returned to Nazareth as a young man, 12 years of age, and he submitted to his parents in obedience to them. Young people, children, teens, youths, obey your parents as Christ obeyed his Father, all the way to the cross. And all of us, have, as we've all been teens at one point, you're about to be a teen pretty soon, we've all been there when our parents have asked us to do things we did not want to do. We've all been there when our parents have said, you know what, you need to, do, you need to obey me because I'm your Father. None of us has ever stood like Jesus in the garden and said to our fathers, knowing what was coming. And Jesus wasn't afraid of the thorns and the spear and the nails. He wasn't afraid of the scourging. I don't think he was even so much afraid of the beard being pulled out of his face. As horrifically painful as all those things would have been. What Jesus was afraid of, if you can use that word, more than anything else, is these words he would cry out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he sat there in the garden, or he lay there on the ground in the garden. In a great agony, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself fully to his Father's will. He was obedient all the way to death on a cross. He knew what it was, not just, we were singing before, the Father turns his face away, I kind of wish I'd get a pen and scratch that out and say the Father turns His face toward. Because the Father made Him who knew no sin to be fully sin against fully sin. And then He turned His full face of anger and wrath and righteous indignation towards His Son and poured out all of His anger against you and me and unto Jesus. He looked at the Son and the face was angry. And the son in the agony of his soul pushed down the nails in his hands and cried that out. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus was afraid of. That's what Jesus was, was trembling about in the garden. That separation, that cutting off. And yet he still says, not my will, but thine be done. 
Young people, your parents will never, ever ask you to do something like that. I'm almost convinced of it. But God in his word says, children, young people, use, obey your parents. And as we started with the Paul's logic, I want to unpack it back into this command here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And when you obey your parents... You are imitating God as his beloved children from 5 and verse 1. And when you obey your parents, you are imitating Christ who obeyed his father to death. You are living as wise children, not fools. When you obey your parents, when you willingly, voluntary, voluntarily obey your parents, you're displaying to them that you're filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus' disciple and follower. When you obey your parents, you're doing what the greatest, and if you'll excuse the phrase, the coolest son who ever lived did. He obeyed his father to death. Young people, listen. Obeying your parents is not a step down. It's to stand alongside of Christ. It's to live out the truth of the gospel. And God did not expect you to do it on your own, in your own strength and in your own power. He gave you the Holy Spirit to enable you to live that life in obedience. And as you learn to obey your parents and walk in their commands and rules, you will know what it is to live in obedience to God. He says it's kind of a one-sided message because if you read the next verses, it's fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. If your mom and dad brought you here today to hear this message, you make sure they come back next week to hear that message. It's equally important. Young people, all of us, we have been called by God. We've been saved by Christ's blood. We've been saved by God's grace. And now he's calling us to walk and live as God's beloved children. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... You'll never understand. You'll never know. You'll never be able to live that way. I shared that message of the gospel before with you. You can look at it over again in the back of that note sheet. If you want some help, I plead with you. Come and talk to me. I'd love nothing more than to sit down and explain as long as it takes the gospel to you so you would know what it means to walk, to walk with Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And then now we're going to sing the benediction and we'll be done for the morning. Loving Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of the living God, the one who was the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, the one who obeyed his Father in everything, the one who went down to Nazareth and obeyed Mary and Joseph and was submitted to them for all those years. Father God, we cry out to you for the young people in this church. Father, thank you for them being here. Thank you for the way in which you've worked in their lives. Father, thank you for the families and the homes and the parents you have given to them. Father, help them to see that obedience to their parents is on a far greater level obedience to God. Father, we pray for all the parents in this room that still have teens in the home. Father, for Heather and I, Include us in that prayer. Oh God, help us not to provoke our children to anger, but to bring them up in the fear and the admonition, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Father, these two halves of this family relationship are so critical and so key. Father, we look around us in the society we live in and we see homes gone absolutely berserk as children run the home. Children rule and parents cower in fear. Father, it is all a result of the sin nature that we have inherited. It's a result of the sin that we love and the sin that we practice. Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ that he offered himself up, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to you to bear away our sin. Father, thank you for the love that we have experienced from him. Father, we cry out to you for our teens and our young people. Father, we cry out to you for the little ones, for little Jesse and Samuel. And Father, for all those little ones that you have blessed us with over the years, Father, we cry out to you for them. We plead with you, O God, that you would save them, that you would give them new life in Christ. 
that they would walk before you in fear and in faith and in obedience. Father, please do a great work through our young people. Father, we think about those in their teens and their 20s and early 20s, mid-20s. Father, we ask you for them. We cry out to you, O God, as they are the next generation to step up and take leadership in the church. Father, we pray that you would work powerfully and greatly in their lives, that the Spirit of God would fill them and encourage them and teach them and train them. Father, give us as older people the wisdom and the the, the power, the help that we need, O God, to train them and encourage them to take over the work that one day we must give up. Father, we cry out to you for the young women in our church. Father, bring them godly husbands and leaders. Father, for the young men, we cry out to you that you would bring them godly wives. Father, we cry out to you that you would do a great work through the youth of this church. Father, bring in more for our Sunday school. Father, we've been praying for months that you would increase and enlarge our Sunday school. Father, we thank you for... The four or five little ones that are here this morning. Father, we bless your name that you have brought them. May their time here be sweet. May they have learned something about the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that they can understand and respond. Father, we thank you too for the older folks in our church. We thank you for the grandparents that have faithfully raised kids and now have the joy of, of being around their grandchildren. Father, we pray that you would encourage them greatly as they see their grandchildren going on for the Lord, as they see their sons and daughters raising their own families for the Lord. Father, we pray that you would greatly bless the families in this church. Father, we cry out to you too for those sitting in this room, standing here in this room, Lord, some here that do not know you. Do not know what it is to have forgiveness, to follow Jesus. Father, we cry out to you that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would confront them with the reality of their sin and their eternal death without the Savior. And Father, we pray also that you would open their eyes. Like you did that lady Lydia in the book of Acts, you opened her heart to hear and receive the message of the gospel. Father, work in those that don't know you, that they would hear and receive the message of the gospel. Father, we pray for a great work. We pray for revival again. Father, I keep asking and I'm not going to stop. We are not going to stop asking, O oh God, until you open the floodgates of heaven. And there is real, genuine, biblical revival in this church. And may it spread to this community and other churches in this community and across our nation. Father, we thank you this morning for a new prime minister. And Father, I read in the newspaper that he makes a profession of faith in Christ. And Father, we pray that he will stand on his biblical principles and lead this nation and point us back, point the nation back towards Christ. Father, we ask you for your blessing on him and his family. Father, we ask you all these things. We know, O oh God, that you are a great God who hears prayers and who answers prayers and delights to hear his children lift up their hearts and voices in prayer. Father, we pray these things and we plead them in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.